The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Now, you lie here and have a nap. You're very tired. Don't want I have scary dreams. Well, I bet Casey doesn't have scary dreams. Let's take a look. Nope. Nothing bad in there. See? Maybe you could just try to be like her, huh? Ripley, she doesn't have bad dreams because she's just a piece of plastic. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, Nim. My mommy always said there were no monsters. No real ones, but there are. Yes, there are, aren't there? Why do they tell little kids that? Most of the time it's true. Yes, Newt, there are monsters. There are monsters that come in all forms. It should be easy to tell who the monsters are, but it can be extremely difficult. First of all, no one purposefully raises someone to be a monster. Since values are determined by society, good and evil are sometimes considered social constructs. At one time, slavery was not thought to be an evil thing. Today, it is. At one time, corporal punishment was considered a necessary, even recommended way of instruction. Today, it's considered abuse. As history has progressed, we have chosen what should be considered civilized and what should be discarded in terms of behavior. But we often compromise our values if there is something to be gained from the work of a terrible person. Francis Crick, the British molecular biologist whose work helped reveal the genetic code, was notorious for his views on racism and eugenics. But that's a scientist. What do you do? when an artist who produces good work turns out to be a monster. On this episode of ARC, I'm going to discuss the difficulties in appreciating the artistic work of a monster, and how Bill Cosby's work is especially problematic for me. Later on, I'm going to give my review and commentary on Spotlight, a movie that chronicled the intrepid reporters who exposed the monsters within the Catholic Church. This is Ark. God blessed to the movies, to good movies, to every possible kind. You shall not pass! Make it so. Where are my dragons? No Nothing for you! Welcome to Earth. Stick around. No slices for white. Clever girl. And they mostly come at night. Mostly. I'm 37. Are you the key master? I'm Omar. Who the hell are you? Omar! Omar, 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Arts Review and Commentary. I'm your host, Omar Latiri, and thank you very much for listening. As always, this show is brought to you by ARC's Amazon page. Shopping Amazon through artsreviewandcommentary.com is the best way to help support this show and the shows on the Realm Network. Noah. Who is that? It's the Lord, Noah. (laughs) 
Right. Where are you? What do you want? I've been good. I want you to build an ark. Right. What's an ark? It was 1986, and I was in fifth grade when I first listened to Bill Cosby's stand-up. I had been familiar with his work with Fat Albert, and I had seen a few episodes of The Cosby Show, but I didn't know that he had been a stand-up comedian. In fact, at the age of 10, I didn't know that there was such a thing as stand-up comedy. Seriously? There was a job where people just told jokes in front of a microphone? This was awesome! So, here I was, at school, fiddling around with the old-style portable record player and oversized earphones. The album I put in was Bill Cosby is a Very Funny Fellow Right, and proceeded to laugh in amazement as this man told jokes that even I could relate to. The discovery of Cosby was a discovery of humor, and it had a profound effect on me. Looking back on it, Listening to that album and laughing was a defining moment in how I grew up. I felt that I had access to something larger than myself. I was laughing right along with the grown-up audience at these jokes, and the fact that I understood these jokes made me feel more grown-up as well. Bill Cosby was the first real-life grown-up that I could laugh with. Years later, when I realized that I could buy these comedy albums for myself, I bought each of his albums on cassette and played them on my Walkman. I took those tapes to college with me, playing them for roommates, and even falling asleep to Old Weird Harold and Chicken Heart. I looked forward to seeing him perform on late-night talk shows, and I even respected him as a community elder with the release of his notorious Pound Cake speech. So when the first allegations of sexual misconduct surfaced about a decade ago, I quickly put it out of my mind. It wasn't that I didn't believe them, it's that I chose not to listen to them. This was different than Michael Jackson and his troubles. With that celebrity, Jackson was weird enough that I could accept what had been going on, and in the cynical days of the 90s, humor and mockery were the way everyone dealt with sexual scandal. Take the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. Back then, liberals were quick to raise a wall of defense and cry, let him do his job. If that were to have happened today, liberals would be the first to criticize the president for seducing an underling of his own staff and cry out for his punishment. As far as Cosby was concerned, all I cared to know was that he was having affairs. Drugging and raping women? That was impossible. That was just women crying for attention or money, like Paula Jones or the kids who sued Michael Jackson. And I've come to realize, as we all should, that we are willing to compromise many principles in order to keep what we want. In the case of politicians, we are willing to accept lies if we feel that they're going to benefit the nation. In the case of entertainers and artists, we're willing to overlook 
if not accept, certain horrible deeds that these artists have committed just as long as they continue to produce great work. When it comes to art, we really would like to think that we have the moral fortitude to boycott the work that monsters have created. Take an easy example. That's 2005's Run It by Chris Brown. His assault and battery of then-girlfriend Rihanna rallied the world against him, and it was easy to boycott his work and slam him in the press. My guess is that many of his detractors never actually listened to any of his music, and those who enjoyed Chris Brown would continue to do so in private. The comparisons to Ike Turner were numerous, and Ike Turner's career never really recovered, especially not after the release of What's Love Got to Do With It. But the crusade against Chris Brown was easy. He was a cocky young guy with evidence of his crime. It was easy to choose not to listen to his music. But what about this artist? Yeah, John Lennon was also a woman beater. And this is where the art versus artist versus audience conundrum becomes muddled. The audience for certain types of art varies. Compared to John Lennon, Chris Brown's work is geared toward a more specific demographic. The works of Woody Allen and Roman Polanski are even more specific. I say with full confidence that more people around the world have listened to a John Lennon song, or even a Chris Brown song, than have watched Annie Hall or Chinatown. The works of Woody Allen and Roman Polanski are made by and for adults, so the impact of the outrage at their crimes is really only limited to the adult world. The only people who learn about and appreciate the works of Woody Allen and Roman Polanski are adults. No kid is out there watching Chinatown or Hannah and Her Sisters. But we were kids when we first listened to the Beatles. And we were kids when we first listened to Bill Cosby. And now that we're grown-ups, we're interested in sharing what we felt was artistically important to the next generation. So when we introduce these works of art to our children, we rationalize it by saying that the art is separate from the artist. It's why we criticize George Lucas and Steven Spielberg for modifying their own creations after they were released to the public. It's why art critics have lauded the works of art by artists who have done reprehensible things. But why do we rationalize in the first place? In short, we rationalize because we feel that the world is a better place with the art in it than without. Even when you find out that an artist has done something terrible, you compromise. The importance that we place on art is irrational when you think about it. Take this example. When the interview came out last year in 2014, People were up in arms when many theater chains chose not to screen it for fear of a North Korean military reprisal. People were up in arms without having seen the movie itself. It could have been a movie with nothing but human centipede jokes, 
and there would still have been support for its release. So, we treat art as a product that is completely separate from the artist in order to distance our appreciation for the art from the character of the artist. And sometimes it works the other way. We can love an artist so much that even if he or she produces a piece of work that is atrocious, we are quick to make sure that the work does not reflect the totality of the artist's character. But that still doesn't get to why it was more difficult to accept Bill Cosby as a monster. We can accept Roman Polanski as a monster and still enjoy his movies. We can accept John Lennon as a monster and still enjoy his music. So why is Cosby so different? I believe the answer lies in the art form itself, stand-up comedy. With film or music, you don't really get to know the artist on a personal level as intimately as you do with a comedian, especially one like Bill Cosby. And when you factor in Cosby's influence on youth, from his shows to his comedy to Jell-O commercials, an indictment on Bill Cosby is an indictment on every single thing of his that you enjoyed since you were a child. And what's more, the humor and stories that Cosby imparted to his audiences were so wonderfully innocent and sweet that it is impossible to reject his body of work despite Cosby's crimes. So what do we do? Do we dismiss and sweep away the positive impact that Bill Cosby's work has had on audiences for generations? Do we deny future generations the laughter that comes from Bill Cosby's work? I guess it depends on how much value you place on that work. For me, Bill Cosby's work was not only formative, but it was transformative. I know I will never be able to forgive Cosby for his crimes, but I think I can accept it. I mean, if I can accept that Franklin Roosevelt interred over a 100,000 Japanese Americans during World War II and can still be considered one of the best U.S. presidents because of everything else he did, then I can accept that great work was done by a monster named Bill Cosby. When we come back, my review and commentary on one of the best movies of 2015, Spotlight. This week on the Mark and Lowell Show. So now that I have virtual Lowell, I haven't looked at my virtual Lowell board in quite a while. No, but that is interesting because it's such a, um, it's such a, no, I'm, 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 now I'm. I think he's getting delirious. I don't think he's able to spit out a sentence. Right, Lowell? Eee, <laughs> was like, Whoa, what are you doing over there? <laughs> I miss this now that I've found it. I love all the different sounds I've got here. This is the worst show we've ever done. Of course it is. It hasn't even started yet, really. Right, I know, and he's already predicted. Terrible show. You're such an idiot. <laughs> this might, I really, if I learn this board really well, we may not ever really need LOL again. Ten, moron. All right. Resistance is futile. It's the Mark and LOL show. You know, you get a lot of people here respect you, Robbie. Oh, well. The work you do. 
That's good to know. You know, it's because you care about this place. Yeah. It's why you do what you do. It's who you are. You know, people need the church more than ever right now. You know, you can feel it. And the Cardinal, uh, you know, the Cardinal, he might not be perfect. But we can't throw out all the good he's doing over a few bad apples. Now, you know, I'm bringing this up to you because I know this is Baron's idea, his agenda. I gotta tell you, I mean, honest to God, I mean, he doesn't care about the city the way we do. I mean, how could he? This is how it happens, isn't it, Pete? What's that? Guy leans on a guy, and suddenly the whole town just looks the other way. At what point do you stop denying that something is wrong? At what point do you treat a crime not as an isolated incident, but as a symptom of an epidemic? How do you investigate a hero? And how do you tell the world that the ones you are supposed to trust are not only capable of horrific things, but allow those horrific things to be conducted without punishment or restitution? The answer? You need an outsider. Spotlight is one of those rare movies, like All the President's Men, that shows what it takes to take down those in power who deserve to be taken down. Like All the President's Men, it shows journalists doing journalistic things. Sources, resources, combined with an incredible amount of tenacity are what's needed in order to do the job right. But if the job calls for you to expose the dirtiness of the city that you love, then the job becomes that much harder. Spotlight takes its name from the investigative unit of the Boston Globe. In 2001, Marty Barron, a Jewish journalist from Florida who had previously worked in Miami, L.A., and New York, became the new editor of the Boston Globe. In the movie, his arrival is met with an understandable skepticism from the staff, most of whom are Boston natives and have had ties to the Catholic Church in Boston. How could a man like Marty Barron possibly understand the nuances of a complex city like Boston? For Marty, though, it wasn't about understanding. It was about uncovering. And Spotlight shows how the team was able to expose the systemic dysfunction of the Catholic priesthood. Law had to know. That's why he had the reaction. Because he knew there were others. I think that's the bigger story. But the numbers clearly indicate that there were senior clergy involved. That's all they do. Indicate. Are you telling me that, that if we run a story with 50 pedophile priests in Boston... Mike, we'll get into the same catfight you got into on Porter, which made a lot of noise, but changed things not one bit. We need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Practice and policy. Show me the church manipulated the system so that these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put those same priests back into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down. Sounds like we're going after law. The ties of community and church are as old as the church itself, which makes the exposure of the scandal that much more epic in scope. Spotlight takes a look at the scandal from the perspective of Bostonians. The church's presence in Boston 
is as fundamental to the city as the Red Sox and the Celtics, and the Archdiocese of Boston provides many services to cater to the faithful. From 1984 to 2002, Cardinal Law was the Archbishop of Boston, and his tenure in Boston cemented him as an integral part to the functioning of the city. Prior to his appointment, Law was an outspoken supporter of civil rights in the United States and was instrumental in bridging ecumenical gaps between the Catholic Church and the Episcopal Church in the United States. It was this body of work that proved that Cardinal Law was a trustworthy figure and his character beyond reproach to Bostonians. So when it is realized that the sex abuses committed by so many priests could not have gone unrecognized by Cardinal Law, the full weight of the impact of that realization begins to drop. The exposure of the secretive transfers of abusive priests from parish to parish exposed what is really only hinted at in this movie, that the sex abuses by priests were not limited to just one city, but to everywhere that Catholic Church has a presence, namely, every single populated continent on the entire planet. And when you realize that the evidence was there all along on a global scale, you have to accept that this has to have happened in one form or another for the past 2,000 years. They knew and they let it happen to kids. Okay? It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. We got to nail these scumbags. We got to show people that nobody could get away with this. Not a priest or a cardinal or a freaking pope. Five out of five stars for Spotlight. A perfectly scripted and perfectly paced film displays the horrible guilt that comes with true self-examination. That's it for this episode of ARC. Stay tuned for my next episode where I will list all the new releases I saw in 2015 with their ratings. If you've seen Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens, listen as I and Mark Ronick from The Mark and Lowell Show describe our impressions of the new movie and the legacy of Star Wars. Go to markandlowell.com, artsreviewandcommentary.com, and realmnetwork.com to listen. And... Don't forget to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash arcreviews and follow the show on Twitter at arcreviews. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is Arc. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.